0: Welcome to episode 84 of Kyperion Commentary. I'm your host, Yuri Brito. And the last few weeks, we've had the opportunity to review several great authors and musicians. And on this episode, I wanted to bring someone who has some background in teaching, in fatherhood, and in theology. And I found just a fella. His name is Brian Daigle, and Brian is the headmaster of Oak Hill Classical School in Atlanta. Georgia. He also wears several hats. He runs a Classical College, a Mudhouse publishing company here, and he is an ordained minister in the ACNA. Hey, Brian, thanks for joining us, brother.
1: Yeah, Yuri, thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to our time together today.
0: Yeah, and of course, I should also add that you write occasionally for Kyperian commentaries. That's an additional uh, bonus for you. Thanks for joining. Man, how do you you manage all these things? You seem to have... I've I've always had a... um, A curiosity of people who are very productive because that's just the way I, to me, if I have a bad day, my response to a bad day is to be as productive as possible the next day. (laughs) That's kind of the way I function for the last, uh, you know, 15, 20 years in the academic world. But uh, you have so many things going on. How do you sort of manage all these things?
1: Yeah, that's good. I, I if, if your theory's correct, which maybe in my subconscious might somehow be correct, if it is, I've had some really bad days. <laughs> um, yeah, I you know, my my goal uh my goal is has always been to do as much um as I can um and not just in quantity but in quality yeah. you know, b- before my before my back hits the hits the grave. Um, that's always been on the forefront of my mind. My, my, my parents are hard workers, um, and so I, I've always had that instilled in me. I, I think for me a few things that have played into my work ethic. Um, the, the first, I think, is just a sense of urgency of what needs to get done. Uh, so that, that drives me. Um, I, I like to, you know, proverbially kill two birds with one stone, so I like mm-hmm. to do as much as I can, you know, with multiple things that I do. Um, I, I try to, I try to do things that complement each other. It's, it's always my advice to, to pastors who are bivocational, you know, do, do things that, that stretch, stretch different muscles and complement each other. Um, so that you, you don't feel like you're, you're working twice as hard, but you're doing twice the work. Um, right. so some advice I got one time was the idea of plod and moil, <laughs> you know, just, ah. right. Do, do a little bit of something in different areas. Um, and then, of course, there, there's my own advice I've I've given out to people, uh, just again vocationally, which is, um, I, I think it's important for for Christian men today to have about three things they're working really hard at vocationally, um, and you know those three things can can even be divided up in in the revenue streams that are coming in for them to support their family because you just never know. I think where where God may. May fertilize certain places in your life, so I, I, I try to manage my time well. I try to have good friends, you know, who I can serve and can serve, you know, my efforts. Um, it also helps to have a, a wonderful family who's supportive of uh, of all these good things.
0: That's great, Brian. I, I appreciate you mentioning these things. I've uh, been plugging in. Uh, uh, Doug's book, whom we had on uh, in Kypere a couple of weeks ago on productivity. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Doug is just one of those fellows that just uh, doesn't stop. I think is in he must be in his 70s, but the guy has uh, an amazing capacity to keep things moving along. And you're plodding along, you know, P L O D D I N G. Yeah. And you're accomplishing. I mean, you're taking a little bite here, a little bite there, but I really like uh, your advice there and taking three things. Um, three sort of projects, especially as it enhances your particular vocation. And I think, uh, you know, part of my work these days is um, I'm doing a doctoral project for Reformed Theological Seminary, and part of my work is finding ways, you know, part of the process was to find a way to concisely explain the role of a pastor without listing a hundred things you ought to do, because there's always something to do, right? Right, right. And I, I sort of concluded that the three fundamental aspects of pastoral life have to do with the building of bonds and friendship, with the process of learning, and the act of leisure, um, you know, sort of following Joseph Pieper's model. And I think that encapsulates a lot of it. But I think in the, under the learning process, which I think is where you come in, there's so much that we can be doing, not as just a way of being productive and you know and calculating as to what's what are we going to try to publish by the end of the year, but also as a way of renewing our minds, as Paul says, and as a way of renewing our vigor to continue to do the work we do as ministers or teachers. I've seen Brian, and you probably have as well. So many pastors, so many teachers, just wear themselves out, lacking the kind of creativity and imagination. Uh, to continue with fresh insights, and I, mean, I think one of the things that keeps me going, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on this here, is that the more I keep learning, the more encouraged I am to continue to pursue my vocation. What, what's kind of what, what's been your experience in that regard?
1: Yeah, I I, I remember one time um, I read a quote by Lewis, and he he basically said, "I write because." God has called me to write and I would I would write and be faithful even if I knew no one would read a, a page of my writing. Oh I like and, that. And the, the reason why that sat with me is because I've seen in my own life that the, the tension of pleasing man is a mm. real thing. <laughs> it's yeah. real for it's real for pastors, it's real for educators, it's real for fathers. Um the, the temptation to want to please your neighbor um, and, and, the reality that you just, if you have enough neighbors, <laughs> you're just not going to please everyone. Um, I think that is one of the, the, a major, uh, major contributor to, um, to fatigue in any vocation, quite honestly. So I, f- for me, I, I've, I've always found it very helpful to ask the question, um, what is my calling before God and what would I do even if no one saw me do it? No one, no one read it, no one showed up, no one asked me about it. What would I do? Um, and and it just so happens right This is sort of the one of those paradoxes in the Christian faith. It just so happens um, that when you take that when you take that approach, you end up um, uh, getting a lot of energy from the work that God's called you to do because it fits your gifts. it fits the need of the hour, it fits, just, just joyful obedience before Christ, and and when you do that, again, the irony of it is, you end up actually pleasing a lot of people around you, right? Um, people are, are quite pleased in in good artists who don't try to to play to the crowd, right? They 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 simply um, create because that's what what God's called them to do, and they create true things beautifully. Um, and again, it, it so happens that. That um, that vertical care of our vocation to God um, becomes a a very attractive thing in our our horizontal friendships. Um, So that's been important. I I think you know, in order to do that, uh, I think in order to do that, you have to have a a clear understanding of yourself and uh, a clear understanding of of what God's called you to do. And and you know, sometimes that means making principled decisions that are not going to be popular, and that's okay. so, I, so that's I, that's what that's one for me I, I think too I you know I go back to the the third 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 thing whenever you know whenever I counsel young men um, in their 20s or coming out of college and trying to figure out even even guys my age you know in their 30s um, and we're talking about about what we do I oftentimes tell them you know you, you should have something in your life that takes up about 70% of your time and is 70% of your income and then you should have another thing that's about 20. of your time, 20% of your income. And then you should have another thing that's about 10. Mm. And, and you never know when the Lord says, okay, this part of your garden, I'm going to bless and you need to drop the other 10% or this 10% that you've been gardening, I'm going to bless. And you need to walk away from that 20% thing. Um, You know, it's, it's very similar to the homeostasis of the body, right? If you work the same muscle group over and over again, you're going to have an injury, (laughs) And so, if you can, if you can care for those different parts of, of who you are and your gifts, um, and see where where the Lord may um, may choose to to bear fruit, I think there's, I, I have found in my own life, it's it's been helpful, it's rewarding, um, it it allows me in some areas to not experience fatigue as quickly as I know I would if I was, you know, quote unquote, a hundred percent right in that thing all the time. Um, so. That's great. I um I've often used the um the example
0: of an old neighbor I had, Brian, and he um, served his wife faithfully for probably I think they were married for about sixty years. But one of the things he never did, and he shared this with me here after she died, is he never spent his early years establishing habits or rituals. He lived for his wife's habits, and when he when she died. It was one of the most striking things I think I've ever experienced in my life. He had no reason to live to the point where, and this is crucial here, to the point where the crescendo, the, the ultimate, the, the height of his day was three o'clock in the afternoon when he would check his P.O. box and that was what he lived for. That was the only ritual he had left. Otherwise, he just sat doing absolutely nothing. And I think that might be an extreme example, but I think that that applies, I think, very um, powerfully to the life of of a thinker and a father, because if we don't develop these early habits and rituals early on, things that we can give ourselves unto and into Beyond merely our main vocation, things that keep us inspired perhaps to you know, to exercise our vocation faithfully, we'll have quite a wake-up call when we reach our 60s and find out that um, we may no longer be equipped for our vocation for some reason or another, and now we don't know what else to do. And I think you've probably seen these examples in, in your life. I've seen many examples of pastors who, after they are asked to resign or perhaps retire for a variety of reasons in their 60s, Find themselves completely, sort of, um, you know, a, a, as wanderers on the earth. Uh, any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, yeah. There's, there's, you know, men, men. I think you alluded alluded to this um, in, a, in a recent post I saw. But you know, there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of awe to be had, you know, from men who've been in the ministry, even if we disagree with them, right, for decades. Because you know what sort of energy and time and effort and spiritual warfare that that has, right. um, so I, I you know I think that's a, a very real thing of of you know, coming down off of a of a, a battle a battlefield you know which perhaps you weren't equipped for perhaps you didn't have the right equipment for perhaps you didn't have the right battalion with you. Um, I think also too, and again, this is this is really just me looking at myself, but. Um, early on, having read uh, Jonathan Edwards' 70 Resolutions and just the spirit of those, <laughs> just the spirit of those and the idea of being convinced and compelled um, um, uh, and, and always asking myself, what is it that's convincing, compelling me to go do this? Um, you know, as you get older, of course, you start to feel your body aching more, you know, your, maybe your patience for conflict or, or wanting, wanting to engage you know, think, thoughtfully engage conflict or, or go into the fire, so to speak, you can, you can feel those things. And I, I feel those from older men around me who I oftentimes look at and say, I just, I wish there was more zeal there. Maybe at one time there was. And I, I actually had a pastor friend one time tell me, he said, you know, he said, you know, we, we've we've fought our battles here. It was a, a small church I was a part of. He said, we've, we've really fought our battles. And, you know, many of us are tired, and I thought in one sense, I, I think it was important for me to have a, a lot of sympathy toward that. I'm in my you know, 30s. I, I get there's a whole uh, you know, reality of physical nature and, and energy happening. But I also, I also thought, man, I, I hope and pray that, that something about that posture isn't within me when I'm 70, um, that, I, that I don't look at the young men behind me. Um, and 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 express that like i've you know i've raised my family i've i've fought the theological battles i've engaged in culture wars i've said what i need to say you know um, lost the friends i need to lose gained the friends i need to gain i'm i'm weary i'm done um perhaps right in my, my weakness in flesh i'll 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 be there but i i've much of my prayer right now is, is just that I would um, that I would continue to instill within myself, and that the Lord would, by His grace, instill within me um, that idea of being convinced and compelled, and and with greater resolution. Um, I think it also helps that growing up with my mom, I, I saw a mom that when things got hard, she leaned in, um, and that that was that's an incredible testimony to me. To um, to just have the, the urge, you know, when things get hard to say, great, that means we lean in. Mm. Um, and I, you know, I, I certainly hope that stays with me, but, um, I, you know, the, the idea, the idea of, of you know, getting getting a, a, a man, even myself getting into my older years and, uh, and reclining, so to speak. Um, I do think that has a lot to do with right now, fashioning our lives as men around things that last right our wives don't last our kids don't last even our, our in the middle ways our vocations don't last our, our money doesn't last and so what what is the the propulsion what is the propulsion for doing what we do and and letting those things mature in us uh, i think is, is is a big deal That's great. I I really appreciate that. You mentioned uh, Edwards
0: resolutions and uh, in my very unsuccessful career as a youth pastor about 18 (laughs) years ago. And part of you you realize real quickly why I was unsuccessful, because the first thing I did as a youth pastor was go through my youth through Jonathan Edwards, 70 resolutions. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I'd like to believe that was the most honorable death I think I've ever (laughs) experienced in my life. But I remember very distinctly his uh, his fifth resolution, which I memorized early on, and I may be paraphrasing here, but he resolved never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way you can. That's great. I remember being struck by uh, Edwards' uh, language in uh, in those days. I I want to let let me follow up with something here. Let's go with. um, the experience, talk about the things that are permanent, things that are not temporary. One of the things that are permanent, at least in, in, in relationship to the fifth commandment, is our our role as, as fathers, as you, and, you and I as fathers, you and I as teachers and instructors in our community. And I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, the role of fatherhood in education, because this all has to do with the process of the ritual of learning and of training and new generations and training young men in particular to... Embrace a kind of vision that it's not easily swayed by uh, memes and slogans. Uh, What has been your experience with fathers and uh, their role in education over the years? I mean, you you have some knowledge of the the classical world. You've been part of your your world is um, uh, dealing with dads on a regular basis. So tell me a little bit about that experience, if you will, Brian.
1: My experience with dads generally this this isn't obviously every every dad and I, you know i don't want i don't want fathers that I, I i know and love to hear this and think what you know does he think of me that way that's certainly not the case G- generally and i think i can give a, a reason for this generally being a man in education is a very lonely thing <laughs> it just is it's how it's how it has worked the past 100 years um it, it was it was striking to me when I was 22 and really began to pursue any type of life of the mind the kind of activities it was striking to me that when I read back in church history how refreshing it was to find men who were poets and teachers and scholars and theologians and philosophers and that felt so foreign because that's not the world of education that I knew. Um, even even growing up in a liturgical setting, um, you know, the the priest obviously was a man, uh, but there wasn't any care for the young men in their academic lives, uh, other than basic catechesis on Sunday, which was part of. Sort of the, the movement of the, 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 the rites or the, as that, as that particular church understands, the, the, those sacraments within the church. Um, that was the extent of it, which that just felt like Sunday school. So it's my, my experience getting into education formally is not very different than my experience growing up in education. Um, and, and the, the thing that summarizes it for me actually happened to me about three months ago. For maybe about four months ago, I was, we, we were, we had some, some, um, there was a, a group of people from another city starting a classical school. So they came over to visit. It was wonderful. There was like eight ladies who showed up and, and two guys. So two husbands, eight ladies, and they showed up to observe the school to sit down with me and talk to discuss, you know, pros, cons, where do you go from here, et cetera. And I just remember so distinctly, all the ladies talked. The men didn't talk at all. We we were leaving the room to to show them around the the school and for them to go visit classrooms. And one of the men, the only thing he said the entire day, is he said, "I'm I'm I'm just here to help them out." Oh my! And that was it. That was all. That was done. And I and I and I just said, "Oh, well, thanks." And my first thought was, "There it is. There it is. It's um." We're, we're we're gonna let not not let but we're going to expect that the the women in our lives are going to have the kind of conviction needed in the church in our schools for education reform and direction and what what's curious about that um, is that's not what we find in church history and it's not what we find in intellectual history. Um, and obviously that, I'm, not, I'm not saying anything about the, the capacity of, of women to be godly women and their role, et cetera. I'm simply saying the, 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 um, the contrast there was stark when I was 22 and the contrast there has been stark in my professional career. Um, and and I, I think it has a lot to do with a few things. Um, the first thing is, where would our men where would our men be getting? A Christian philosophy of education? Well, let me start even more basic. Where would our men be getting their philosophy uh, philosophy of education? And the answer is, it's how they were educated. Mm-hmm. Well, how were, how were most of our men educated? Well, they were m- majority educated um, uh, in a public school setting or um, in a private school setting that acted a lot like a public school. So that's the majority of the imagination of our men are coming from there. Where would they get that overturned in order to realize their role in the family, in the church, in the school of being educational leaders? Where would they? Notice, I'm not saying academic leaders yet. I'm not saying intellectual leaders. Where would they? Where would they even get the idea that that should be overturned and our men are to be educational leaders? Um, where would they be getting that? Well, they should be getting it from the church. They should be getting it uh, from the local Christian school that has that kind of theology um, and philosophy within it, but it's not happening. So um, there, there, uh, and I'll share some things in, in history that I've read in educational treatises that I found comforting. <laughs> um, uh, but, but that I think that's been a big part of my experience, which is. Um, you know the men I had in in, in in my formal education were all coaches. They weren't any 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 academically you know anything to write home about. Um, the the pastors in my life growing up did not um, provoke me to to care for the life of the mind. Um, and then you move into formal education and you find that that's really no different even in a Christian setting. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, that's
0: you know that's interesting because when I go to uh, Brazil to teach uh, seminary in Brazil. That's the one thing I hear very often from the the men in my master's class. They are just frustrated that their little churches, they're trying to build healthy reformed churches, are mainly composed of women who love the Bible. Necessarily, they're put in the position that the music, for example, is gonna be shaped by particular, honestly, tastes of the women of the church. And they have expressed it many times to me that when, when the few men when they do come, they're quickly they don't stay very long. I mean, there's a level of discomfort altogether. So I think it's a there's a kind of universal sense in which that's true in ecclesiastical environments as well. And I um I'm, I'm fascinated as I read through uh, Calvin's Company of Pastors and um, Richard Baxter's work and Kitter minister in the 17th century that a great part. Of the pastoral labors of these men, whether it be in Geneva with, you know, Calvin, Beza, and others, or in Kidderminster, was that they spent a significant amount of time with the men of the church, instructing them. There would also be certain disciplinary cases, and you can read this in the, um, in the, in the notes of the records of, uh, Calvin's company of pastors where certain men would be disciplined. For not fulfilling their catechetical duties towards their children, I mean, imagine that were happening today, Brian. Yeah, we'd have a a, a massive a, a massive disciplinary action, probably lawsuit against us too. Yeah. But there was a great stress on causing men to and embrace their function in society, whether in the academy or or at the church. Um, I, you know, you as a father, how, how many kids do you have, Brian? We have three kiddos. They're six, four, and two. Okay, wonderful. Um, three kiddos. I think before being before being a dad, I think we had at least I had these very utopian ideals of what I would do in terms of education. Not counting, of course, just the, the high volume constantly in the home with a bunch of kids and the distra- I had a, a lot of ideals. Of course, these have been relatively um, averaged out as my kids have come into the picture here. Being a father, when you became a father, um, and as you watched your children grow a little bit, did your view of education change at all?
1: Yeah yeah um, it, it got deeper <laughs>
0: yeah oh that's it, interesting yeah.
1: It got it got deeper um I, I think that I think the first thing that happened was I realized the importance of of what education is. Um, that that was happening sort of professionally, right off to the side of like, no, no, this is actually what education is. It's it's not it's not the narrow schooling that we thought it was. It's actually much much more comprehensive. So that that was happening from a just a, a general understanding standpoint. Um, I, I attribute a lot of that <laughs> to Chesterton, uh, but but then um, you have the whole other question of having, a, having a, a deeper understanding and more comprehensive understanding of what, what a father is. Right. So, you know, here I was having a, a deeper, more comprehensive understanding of what education is, why our, our local churches should absolutely care about it. Um, why our seminaries should require pastors and priests to be formed in a Christian imagination of education um, and, uh and then, and then on the other end, as a dad, realizing the comprehensive nature of a dad, right? Being a father is not just um, monetary providence, right? It's not just physical providence. Uh, and then, and then kicking my feet up and saying, "Well, I did it, right? I I, I brought home the the bacon that the you know my, my wife can cook." Um, no, it's it's um, I have a responsibility as a father. Uh, <laughs> To, to really emulate God the Father and what what does that mean for the nurture and admonition of every part of my child, not just um, they have a roof over their heads and they have dinner on the table, right? But they're being nourished um, in their understanding of their little bodies. They're being nourished in, in their um their their understanding of god they're being nourished in their sort of basic anthropology which happens in the home they're being nourished by my virtues um and you know hopefully my diminishing vices they're being nourished i i have a responsibility of a comprehensive responsibility um to lead in their full nourishment so like so when that's happening as a dad um, and then on the other end, you, you realize the comprehensive nature of the word education and you go, wow, I, like, I, you know, I, this isn't, this isn't just a, this isn't just a curriculum decision, right? Like th- this isn't just, I'm a dad who can write the private school check. Like th- this is, this is much bigger than, and then, and then right when that intersects the local church and then when that intersects the city, You've got four places where I, as a, a Christian man, need to look at and say, what are my responsibilities in these four places? Um, and, th- I, you know, I, I don't it's not that I have this conviction because I'm in education I'm in, I, I, you know, as Chesterton puts it, everyone is in education, right? If education is a concrete thing, he says, there's none of it. And if it's an abstract notion, then there's, there's nothing but education. (laughs) Um, And then his next part of the quote is everyone in England has been educated. The only difference is some are educated poorly. Um, Right. So, so when you, this is from his work called what's wrong with the world. There's a, the, the, the second section is called the idea of the child. Um, it's a it's incredible, uh, and uh, when, when you know, I, I, it's not that I have these convictions because oh, well, Brian, that's your job. You're supposed to be a principal. You're supposed to be a teacher. Of course, so it's um, it's if I believe um, if I have certain uh, beliefs about um, the role of men in the local church, the role of men in the city, the role of men, in the family, and the role of men with children. Um, then the, the logical conclusion is our men really need to be at the forefront of these civic and, and theological discussions, no matter what your vocation is. In fact, I, I could actually present the case that if God has given you a vocation in the corporate world, you have a responsibility in that sphere of sovereignty to think through the same questions that I do within my specific um, career path. So um, the, 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 you you don't—it's not that um, because I'm formally in the career path of schooling that I don't deal with educational questions. I just deal with them in this way. <laughs> uh, another man right next to me in the church needs to deal with the educational questions um, in his particular career path uh, according to the the children in his care and the children in his church.
0: And I assume you probably view you probably have seen um, men come to this sort of transformative point where they just reframe the questions. You know, they say, well, I, I didn't think I had a particular role to play in this education process because I think overall, you, you probably see a lot of um, women more invested in the education process than, than the men. But I think th- there is a kind of a remarkable thing that happens when men actually embrace that vision. And they become sort of inherent kyperians without having ever read Kuiper. Uh, I've, I've seen this happen a few times where their entire disposition changes because they have now sort of exposed themselves and come to this conversion, at least intellectual conversion experience, that um, they have a particular function to play in the kingdom of God as it pertains to their children. And that changes the dynamic. Have you seen these kinds of uh, you know intellectual conversions in your experience?
1: Yeah, probably yeah. the most powerful one um, is um, was Rod Dreher when he when he when he was at our you know they're uh, an important family at our academy in Louisiana, um, yeah. and you know I challenged the dads to read one classic that year with their with their kids, and he read Dante, um, and lo and behold, right, he was going through even as a mature Christian man, journalist. He was going through a, a midlife crisis no one knows about. You know, he's not telling everyone about. And yet, you know, he writes how Dante saved his life, right? The book mm-hmm. that came from that. Right. Um, and, uh, it, it's, you know, it's funny. It's one of the reasons why I love, 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 love classical Christian schools. Because if you do this well, what happens is what you're doing as an institution The the principles you hold to, the expectations you have of the family, the expectations you have of your faculty, you end up. I mean, that sort of stuff ends up being um, leaven in the homes, or you know, being yeast in the homes. That ends up up uh, ends up um, uh, just kind of going throughout the home and and uh, and growing the thing and caring in ways that you didn't even anticipate. Um, And and part of it is part of it is because we have such a decayed culture we have such a decayed culture for our men our churches are oftentimes not um they're not exceptions to this and so when when you have an institution that that basically says these are the questions we're going to ask this is the way that we're going to engage um, in this thing called education which is a comprehensive thing and you you encourage parents to realize that this isn't just for the, the, the three-year-olds and the 10-year-olds and the 15-year-olds, that this is for our Christian faculty to mature in holiness. This is for our Christian mothers and fathers to mature in holiness. When they lean in just a little bit, just a little bit to the table of classical Christian intellectual history, there is no doubt. It's one of my favorite things to watch dads because it happens personally first. It happens personally. They start to lean in personally, and then they go, Oh man, like th- this actually, this really kind of matters to everything in my life. Um, and then before you know it, right, they're they're talking about conversations at their workplace they had about a book they're reading, or logic, or rhetoric, or um, you know th- those sort of things. And uh, and and again, it's it, it's not the thing that's wonderful about classical Christian ed is it's not it's not this it's not this research contained thing. Um, that you get in a textbook, it, it is truly the principles by which we are to grow in love for God and love for our neighbor. We're just happen happen to we're just we just happen to do it with with uh, you know with children at school age. Um, so yeah, so I, I've seen it. Uh, I see it every year. I see it every year with dads. I see it with moms. I, and it's really funny. Dads kind of come in with um, dads kind of enter in. Obviously. You know they they understand the intellectual history of it. They, they understand and, and respect the intellectual value of it. So there's a little bit of intimidation I see from dads there. Um, but but when they lean in, when they show up to a book meeting, when they when they enter into dialogue beyond just writing the check, they end up getting such uh, excitement for going back to their local church and saying we should do something like this. Mm-hmm. Um, how how can we do this for uh, the the men at work or the men in our our local church.
0: Just for those who are listening right now, this is, this is a very important conversation because, at a pastoral level, I do a lot of counseling. And I can say without a shadow of a doubt that a vast majority of marital conflict that I've dealt with over the years has to do with the fact that the woman is the intellectual pursuer in the home. She may not be interested in reading intellectual books, you know, great novels of history, but she obviously wants to think carefully through life. And the husband is just way behind about. Three miles behind in this in this marathon of life, and part of her frustration is that her husband—it's not that her husband um, despises her. When a man is not prone to pursuing the good, the true, and the beautiful, what will happen is there will be a a, um, what I refer to as a disorientation of the oikos, a disorientation of the household, that things will not be where they ought to be, and I think that's dangerous because it leads to. Confusion in the home. I didn't, um, even though my father was a university professor. There wasn't much of an emphasis to read and to study. My, you know, I was into, into soccer and volleyball. I was very athletic oriented. And to watch my my son this morning, Brian, I thought this is a kind of a cool thing to bring up. I wake up pretty early in the mornings, usually between the four thirty and five. And at, as I got out of my office at around 15, the the homeschool room light was on and I walked in there and my son was up and I thought he was up reading a book on how to build certain things. And I thought at the age of nine, he's probably thinking on this level, at the level I was thinking at the age of 18. And so we we have an opportunity as perhaps first or second generation homeschool dads or classical school, um, you know, uh, people who treasure the didactic work of classical education. We can see even within a short period of time, the fruits of our labors. And for the dads listening, there are ways for you to say, I can't go too fast because I'm not there in uh, mentally persuaded, but there are small little ways that I can get there, and there are small little ways you can begin this journey. So practically, give us just a couple of things, Brian, that you can think of for the dad who just doesn't have or probably didn't grow up with the kind of... Uh, you know, the, the intellectual vigor or the didn't experience the conversations at the dinner table that we experience, and are at a loss, where to go now, where would you recommend they start?
1: Yeah. Um, the the first place I would recommend they start is by taking their Christian faith seriously. Mm. That's, yeah. where I, that's where I would start. Because if you start anywhere else, you're going to start further down the line of goods. <laughs> and some sometimes those aren't sustainable. But if, but if we say that God has called every man to love him with their mind, <laughs> then we ask the question, what does that look like for a faithful Christian? When, when you begin there, you begin at really the most important motivation and the most comprehensive motivation for it to reach other parts of your life, right? So instead of saying, well, I'm going to be the husband who leads my wife intellectually and is smarter than her, right? You, you end up pursuing the fruit over the roots. <laughs> um, and, and that can be just yeah. dangerous in any yeah. arena. Um, but But if you say, no, God has called me, right? Christ said the um, the law and the prophets can be summed up in this, right? The Lord your God has all and strength. Love your neighbors, yourself, and you go love the Lord your God with your heart, with your soul, with your mind, with your strength. Obviously, uh, particularly in the evangelical world, I, I don't think um, the Roman Catholic world is is outside of this either. The the anti intellectual pervasiveness is a st- um, and if you want to read a great book on this, there's a, a good book by Oscar It's called Fit Bodies, Fat Minds. <laughs> mm-hmm. Fit Bodies, Fat Minds. Uh, it will convict you beyond a shadow of a doubt um, of, of some of the, the, the rotten boards. So, so I would tell dads, look, start with, start with obedience to Christ. Not, not, don't start with, I want to be the smartest guy in the room. Don't start with, I, I want to out, out intellectually box my bride. Don't start with, um, I, w- I want a promotion. Just start with, I want to love God with my mind. Start there. Then, um, stop loving other things so much. <laughs> so, right, so uh, love God with your mind more, as he's called us to, and that means time and effort, which means we're finite, so you should stop spending time and effort on other things that are lesser, that have, like. Right? that are lesser good, they're goods, lesser goods. Um, I I won't point at what those might be in someone's life. Just look in your own life and and determine where to to move time and move, move, you know, time blocking around. Um, And then I think the third thing I would say, there's a fourth one. I think the third thing I would say is go find friends, go find friends who hold the value to that. I just said that you want to love God with your mind. You want to prioritize your, your calendar and your life and your thoughts Go find friends who promote that. And the last thing I would say uh, is uh, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Like don't, don't look at certain groups and say, man, if I, if I ask this question, if I go grapple, right. We tend to think of this way as men. If I go into that ring, my weakness is going to be seen, right? Like, I have to metaphorically take off my intellectual shirt and I've got a dad bod <laughs> and I've got to go wrestle this other man, so to speak, right? We, we can feel that way in theological circles and philosophical circles. And I would just say, don't let your insecurities paralyze you. Don't do it. That'd be the fourth thing I'd say. Um, don't, don't allow the, the insecurities that all of us have intellectually to say, I don't want to join that book group. I don't want to watch that lecture. I don't want to, I don't want to try my hand at that classic. Uh, Don't let it, don't let that's. That's a big fat lie. And I think it's, um, I think men, you know, just in our, in the way that we we try to to be around each other in the way that we try to be strong and not be weak. I think when we know our weakness, we, we tend to just um, go toward the things that make us Look strong and powerful, and and we end up neglecting a lot of important areas.
0: Yeah, that that's terrific. Man, I, I appreciate that very much. I was um, thinking about the uh, distinction that I've made before between uh, poets and practitioners, and how much we depend on one another. You know, whether we are prone to the poetic or prone yep. to the practice, we yep. have a, a mutual dependence. And I, you know, in the pastoral world, they say that the pastor's best friend is the next Sunday sermon. And uh, that if you, if, you, if you enter into a, a scenario where you feel like, you know, you didn't communicate things clearly as you should, there's always a next Sunday where you have an opportunity to work on. And I think these kind of um, environments where people can get together and smoke cigars and drink a scotch or whatever can provide a more informal scenario where you can just test ideas, throw them out for contemplation, for a kind of uh, informal peer review. And uh, we need to do more of that often in in our churches. And I think we're seeing a kind of increase, you know, I don't know what things have happened uh, in your environment there, but for us, there's been this increased hunger for fellowship among men in our congregation, our community. We've done quite a few of these during, even during the season. And the conversations have been, because we have so many things to talk about, truly inspiring and has actually brought people who are generally quiet in these kinds of discourses to actually enter conversations and contribute in a way they didn't think they were free to do so before. And uh, these kind of informal environments they just build you so you can you know it, 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 these are previews for other conversations that you'll have at home. And I one of the things one of the points you made I think it was helpful was that a dad does not have to be an, a, an academic. He doesn't have to have inclinations as you and I have to read Chesterton and Lewis and and Calvin and Bonhoeffer but he does have to have an interest to love the mind of Christ and the principle from um, that has come to my attention recently from Nehemiah I remember when the when the adversaries were bullying and demagoguing the people as they were building the wall in Nehemiah 4:17 it says that they had they were working with one hand and they had a weapon in the other and i thought how brilliant that is for the educational process we can work and we also have the kind of apologetic tools to defend and to make a case for why the educational labors we're engaged in is so worthwhile, worth protecting, worth rebuilding, worth investing. And I think at the end of the day, we're we're left with that vision for the men that they would uh, not only be students, but uh, instructors, and that they would love the mind that Christ gave them. You know, just to paraphrase John Piper, don't waste your mind.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, 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 that's a wonderful image too. And it reminds me, and, and what you said a while ago, reminds me of this kind of historic question uh, be, be, between the, the active life and the contemplative life. One that we see pop up a lot, and it's it's always been my challenge to myself to say, Brian you you need to be a whole father, right? Like I think about the, the Nehemiah um, image that you just gave, right? Like if you think about our homes and I say, what sort of, like what do my children need? They, they actually do need me to wield two different tools, right? They they need me to the, to wield the things that care for their physical life, their active life, and they need me to wield the tools that build and nurture and care for their contemplative life. My, my like, anyone who has little kids, right? They, they ask questions. The other day, uh, Charlotte said, she's a four-year-old. She said, Dad, we're driving. She said, Dad, where, where was I before I was in mama's belly? <laughs> right? And I thought, I, I really thought, I'm so thankful that the Lord has put on my heart to challenge myself to answer these sort of questions, not like an academic. In fact, Many academics I know, <laughs> many the academics I know are not the sort of fathers that I would want to emulate. So yes. I don't encourage dad to be academics, but I do encourage dads to be wanderers, to be invested in the in the the, the joy of learning um, while we're on this earth and the roles that we have. And so like when I when I think of what it means to be a father providentially, I do think of those I have a responsibility to, to not be a, a half of a dad. I have a responsibility to be a whole dad in how I provide for my family and, which you know, many of us saw in our dads, but um, also provide for them um, theologically, intellectually, linguistically. Um, and so I think, I think that's a really great image. And, and again, it's, it's a challenge that, especially, as I, again, as I've looked at men that I've loved and revered, right? These are, these are men, but professors I've had or pastors I've loved, these are men who I know just lived a balanced life. They, they were men who worked. Um, they worked at the, the active of life for what that meant, uh, and, and, and they worked at the contemplative life. Um, and, and I've, I've seen for me, it's such a compliment. It's such a, I, I find that I do, I do well in the sort of act of life when I'm, um, when the, my, my, the contemplative component of my humanity is cared for and vice versa. Brian Daigle, man, this is, um, this
0: is a fantastic conversation. I'm looking forward to having another one already. Uh, But Brian is the headmaster of Oak Hill classical school in Atlanta, Georgia. And he has a host of things that he's doing right now. And I'll make that available to our listeners. Brian, uh, thanks for having this conversation at Kyperian, brother.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity. and, And thanks for the work that you guys do as well.